0: for a number of years, verse by verse through the gospel of Luke. So let's return there this morning to the 19th chapter of Luke's gospel. Our text today is lengthy verses 28 through 48. The title of the message is the coronation of the King. Today is the day on the calendar called Palm Sunday. It marks the beginning of what many Christians refer to as Holy Week, which of course culminates in resurrection Sunday morning. I want to divide our text today into four sections. And those sections are listed on your outline. First is the Savior's sovereignty. And then we have the people's praise, the master's mercy, and then finally the robber's rebuke. As we speak and read about the passion or the suffering of Jesus anytime, but I think especially this week on our calendar, we must be very careful not to think or articulate untrue or even unworthy thoughts about Christ. So don't think of him as a pathetic figure. Think of him as a conquering king because that's exactly who he is. And we see that right away, beginning in verse 28, the Savior's sovereignty. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And as he approached Bethphagee and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it, bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say, the Lord needs it. And those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? And they replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. So it says, after Jesus had said this, so it's been a few weeks since we've been in the gospel of Luke. So let's remind ourselves what he said last. He had told the parable of the minas, that is of a king who went away to receive his kingdom. And while he was away, he gave his servants and his constituents instructions that when he returned, they were going to be held accountable. And of course, Jesus was referring to himself that he was going away for a time after his death. And when he came again, he would come to judge. Now, most people, Jesus, they didn't understand that. In fact, Jesus' true disciples didn't understand it either. Jesus had been uh, on his way. The scripture says his face was set to Jerusalem. He was going to fulfill all of the Old Testament messianic prophecies. He was going to complete his mission, which he declared was to seek and save the lost. Now, the path that he was on took him through the city of Jericho, which uh, was about 3,000 feet below the city of Jerusalem, as far as elevation. And on that path were these little villages of Bethany, where Jesus' friends, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus lived. That's where he would call home base for this holy week. And then uh, he would make his way up to the Mount of Olives, and then as he... Reached the apex of the Mount of Olives, he could look down and across the valley of Kidron and see the city of Jerusalem. And so that's his path. So what's happening here? Well, Jesus' time has come. Up until this point, Jesus would not allow himself to be arrested or killed. Up until this time, he resisted the people's attempts to crown him as king. But now was the time. The time had come exactly when he wanted it to. And so think of Jesus as a sovereign and not a victim. Please don't overlook this triumphal entry. It's incredibly important in the gospel story. In fact, it's one of only a handful of events and circumstances that all four gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John include in their gospel narratives. And it's significant for a number of reasons. I've listed three. For one, the triumphal entry shows that Jesus is sovereign over the events of history. You'll notice that he predicted that this cult was going to be tied up waiting these disciples. The scripture says, when they got there, they found it was exactly as he said, but that was not the only thing that Jesus had predicted. Just a chapter earlier, he had told them plainly that we're going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be arrested. They're going to turn me over to the Romans. I'm going to be beaten and I'm going to die. See, Jesus uh, was not a victim of anyone the circumstances of history had been working up until this culminating moment. But Jesus is not only sovereign over history, he's sovereign over humanity. They said what do we say if someone asks why we're untying the colt? He says say the lord has need of him. You see a king has the right of conscription over both people and property. If a king needed something that you had to accomplish his purpose, he could take it and it wasn't against the law. And, and this is what Jesus was doing. He is sovereign over all humanity, but he's sovereign even over all creatures, including this donkey. The scripture says that no one had ever rode before. Well, you can imagine an animal that had never had a human on his back. Uh, if any one of us tried to do that, it would be a disaster. But, but Jesus could command even this unbroken donkey and it obeyed him. Now let's see next the people's praise, the people's praise. That's found in verse 36. The scripture says, as he went along, that is he's going on this path from Jericho up through Bethany to Bethphagee, ultimately to the top of the Mount of Olives and then down the other slope, the Western slope, which led into uh, the gate of Jerusalem. And as he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. And when he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles that he had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, they said. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. I remember that this was Passover week. One of the three festivals on the Jewish calendar where the people were required to come to Jerusalem so, the city would have been filled with as many as two million visitors. And each family that came was required to bring an unblemished lamb to sacrifice in the temple and eat in observance of Passover. You remember Passover commemorated the time when God delivered the Hebrew slaves out of Egypt through the tenth and final plague, and that they were required to, to kill an unblemished, unspotted lamb and sprinkle the blood of that lamb over the doorpost and lintel of the house so that death would pass over that house. That, of course, was a foreshadowing and a typical prophecy of Jesus who now comes as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so many of these people that were in Jerusalem for Passover had observed over the last three years some of Jesus' miracles. Some of them likely were among the thousands that were fed supernaturally by the loaves and fish. So when the the rumor started circulating that Jesus was on his way to town to celebrate Passover, the people began to rush out towards the Mount of Olives to greet him and meet him. So as Jesus makes his way down the western slope of the Mount of Olives, it's, it's like a snowball, I take it, gathering momentum. And as the crowd gathered, the noise got louder and louder. Excitement was in the air. And finally they thought, Jesus is going to use his power to overthrow these pagan Romans and establish the throne of Israel as it should be and will usher in the good old days again as it was in the days of David. And yet a conquering king could hardly be thought of as uh, riding a humble donkey. Conquering king rides a, a white war horse, but Jesus is riding a donkey, the symbol of peace. Not only that, he's not followed by a battalion of soldiers. He's surrounded by non-combatants. His disciples were fishermen and tax collectors and they had come from every other rung of society and they were singing his praises. But Jesus wasn't just riding a donkey for, for donkey's sake. Scripture says this was a donkey that had never been ridden. I think that speaks of the uniqueness of Jesus' mission in all of human history. There were many and would be later other generals who would march into Jerusalem to destroy. But Jesus, remember, said he came to seek and to save that which is lost. We we see the uniqueness of Jesus' mission throughout his lifetime, even in his conception. Who else could we say was conceived in the womb of a virgin? Only Christ. And it's seen in his death. The scripture says that when he was taken down to the cross, he was laid in a tomb in which no one had ever been laid. A new grave, Joseph of Arimathea had provided. And here we have this donkey that no one had ever written exclusively to the unique mission of Jesus. And so the people began to praise Jesus as he made his way down the Western slope. They were saying things like, blessed is the King, Hosanna, Brother Lawrence said, means, Lord, save, peace, glory, and all the other gospel writers tell us that they cut down palm branches and waved them in the air and laid them in the path along with their coats. All of this was a sign of submission to Christ's perceived authority. These were unmistakably messianic terms and imagery. It wasn't lost upon Jesus' enemies. The Pharisees quickly took note and recognized the people's words were messianic, and and they said in anger, verse 39. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, "Teacher, rebuke your disciples." I tell you, he replied, "If they keep quiet, the stones will cry out." He's they're saying, "Don't let them say that you're the Messiah." Jesus says, uh, "There's no stopping them now. The time has finally come." In fact, Jesus says, "If these people don't say it, these rocks will." That is, God is sovereign over all of His creation including inanimate objects. Now is the time for everyone to praise. But unfortunately the praise of the people that day turned out to be false praise for the most part, you probably know that the crowd is fickle, changes its mind very quickly. And so in just a few days, many of these same people who were screaming, Hosanna, save us blessed glory are screaming at the top of their lungs now crucify him put him to death why well it's not because he was not the messiah it's because he was not the messiah that they wanted many people in our own culture today have a positive attitude towards Jesus when you have a conversation with him with them about him at least they have a positive image of the Jesus of their imagination. They lose that positive image when they find out that that Jesus of the Bible holds them personally accountable for their sin and will one day come to judge them, but that doesn't change Christ's attitudes towards them. The Bible says that God is merciful and kind and slow to anger. And here we find it in verse 41. Yet another example of the kindness and mercy of the Lord. Scripture says, when he approached Jerusalem, as he crossed the Kidron Valley, he's about to go into the Eastern gate. He saw the city and he wept over it saying, if you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes for the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side and they will level you to the ground and your children within you and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. So even as the praises of the people were ringing in Jesus ears, he knew the truth. Their hearts were still hard. Many of these people, most of those people would ultimately reject him as their king and that truth broke his heart. And so he wept now th- this term to weep is not have a tear in the corner of the eye, I take it that Jesus is sobbing. He knew what was coming in just a few decades. In fact, he prophesies it very clearly here that the city of Jerusalem is going to be destroyed and the temple is going to be devastated. And of course, history tells us that's exactly what happened. Josephus is one of the most famous historians of that era. And he was actually there during the Roman Jewish war. A group of zealots, Jewish nationals had tried to overthrow the the Roman occupying forces. And of course, uh, Rome was not going to stand for that. So they sent one of their generals, a man by the name of Titus Vespasian, who eventually would become Caesar. And he brought his Roman soldiers and they surrounded the city. And they began to starve out the people. And ultimately they built ramparts and attacked the city and they slaughtered the people. Josephus tells us that there were 1.1 million people killed because at the time that they surrounded the city, it was also Passover then in 70 AD. And so the city was filled from, with Jewish people from all over the known world. 97,000 of them, of those that were spared the sword, were taken as slaves. Many of them brought back to Rome to serve in the gladiatorial games. The city itself was literally leveled, Josephus says, right down to the very foundations. Just exactly as Jesus said it would. His soldiers burned the temple. Now, why is this? Well, Jesus said very clearly why that is, because they had rejected their king in the time of his visitation. The Lord Jesus took no joy in bringing judgment on his people, and he has no joy in doing that today. And so here we find, once again in the scriptures, the mystery of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. On one hand, from God's point of view, all of these events are playing out just as he planned it that he sent his son into the world at just the right time to live a perfect life and to die in the place of sinners. On the other hand, the people who were responsible for rejecting Jesus and ultimately putting him on the cross don't escape responsibility. And that is a mystery to us, but in God's mind and in his economy, it's true. And we also have the mystery of God's mercy and his justice. Even as Jesus, is planning and predicting God's judgment upon Jerusalem. He's merciful towards those people and he weeps over them. That is the God that we serve. But the events of that day are, are not quite finished. There's one more thing left to do before he retires for the evening. And that is what I'm calling the robber's review. Look at verse 45. Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out those who were selling, saying to them, it is written, and my house shall be a house of prayer, but you've made it a robber's den. And he was teaching daily in the temple, but the chief priests and the scribes and the leading men among the people were trying to destroy him. And they could not find anything that they might do for all the people were hanging on to every word he said. I've been reading about the construction of Solomon's temple and, uh, in the Old Testament. And one of the things that Solomon made clear that this was a place of worship and this was a place of intercessory prayer for all people and all the nations of the world. But you know that Solomon's temple had been destroyed because of the people's wickedness. Uh, this particular temple that was destroyed in 70 AD, is, which was called Herod's Temple, uh, and it was magnificent to say the least, but Jesus predicted that that temple would also be destroyed and that's exactly what happened. But surrounding the temple proper were the various courts. And remember I told you that the people had to bring lambs. Many of them who were businessmen did not have livestock and so they had to purchase their lamb when they got there. And so there were many unscrupulous business leaders who would sell property that was not worthy, or they would give unfair exchange rates. Of course, Jesus being God was aware of that and he hated injustice. Then he hates injustice of any kind now. And so he became angry, the scripture says, and he drove out those who were doing this selling. Now at that time, a group of religious leaders called the Sadducees controlled all the concessions of the temple grounds. And so to drive out their vendors was going to cost them a lot of money. So here was the final straw leading up to Jesus ultimate arrest and crucifixion. Uh, the scribes and the Pharisees historically were at odds with one another. The Pharisees were religiously conservative. The Sadducees were religiously liberal, but they united over one thing. And that is their mutual hatred of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so once they were united, It was time now for Jesus' plan to begin. He had stripped the Pharisees of their authority, shown them to be hypocrites. Now he stripped the Sadducees of their income and he forced the issue. You see, they had planned to wait until after Passover when all the people had gone back home. Then they were going to arrest Jesus and so they could kill him quietly and in secret, but, but they knew they could not do that any longer because he was so popular. They had lost control of the situation, which is of course why Jesus did what he did. He wanted to show that he is sovereign and not any person. And so in conclusion, let's think back to Philippians chapter two, that passage that we call the kenosis passage where Jesus emptied himself. Paul said that uh, the Lord Jesus emptied himself and Uh, What that means is that he emptied himself of, of the prerogatives and the glories of heaven. See, Jesus did not begin his existence when he was conceived in the womb of Mary. He is the eternal second person of the Trinity, the eternal son of God. He was at creation. In fact, all things were created by him and through him, the scripture says, and in the secret councils of God, it was determined that just the right moment in history, he would become a man, live a perfect life and go to the cross. Never at any moment in that perfect life though, did he cease to be God. And we see that right up until the day of his crucifixion. He was sovereign over all historical circumstances, all the way down to his mode of transportation. He was sovereign over all humanity. He was taking even the sinful hearts of men and using them for his glory. And he is sovereign even over all creation. He says he could cause even the rocks to cry out. And and that actually happened. When Jesus was crucified, the rocks were torn in two in a great earthquake. And we see Christ's sovereignty most clearly in his life through a passage like Isaiah 53, which was written 800 years before Jesus was born. And it perfectly predicted that he would be this suffering servant, this lamb who goes to the slaughter. He doesn't utter a word. This one who was bruised and beaten and by whose stripes we would be healed. His sovereignty is seen in his suffering, and, but also in his death, which is vividly described in the Psalms. And it's seen most clearly, I believe, in his resurrection, which we're going to celebrate here together one week from today, when he became victorious over the final enemy, which is death. And so, dear friends, my question to you is do you share in that victory? For all of us who know the Lord Jesus, who've been born again, whose eternal addresses have been transferred from hell to heaven, who have now become citizens of Christ's kingdom. We share in that victory. Now, this is a time in our country where people are not feeling very victorious. There's lots of fear being manifested in the world and even in our own city today. Ultimately, I believe it's a fear of death. But I want to speak to Christians here today, we do not have to fear death, because we are in Christ. In fact, Romans chapter eight, verse one says, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Jesus. And I take from that, if the very worst happens, that is if we lose our lives, what happens next is we go to heaven, be with the Lord. So that's why Paul can say to live is Christ and to, to, to die is gain. And even if you're not fearful as a Christian, many of your lost neighbors are. And that's why it's so important that Christians and specifically members of First Baptist Church of Keller manifest the joy of the Lord and a supernatural peace that passes human comprehension during this time because it is an incredible open door and opportunity to proclaim the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't want to miss that opportunity. And so in the time remaining that we have today, I want to share the gospel. I have a goal and I've had it for many years that every member of this church at the drop of a hat could clearly articulate the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ in five minutes when given the opportunity. And I think the starting point to do that is 1 Corinthians chapter 15. In my mind, there's no clear passage in the Bible about what the gospel is. Remember the apostle Paul is writing to the church at Corinth and he's speaking to them in this chapter specifically about the necessity of the literal bodily resurrection. And so he says this 1 Corinthians 15:1, Now I make known to you brothers, the gospel, there's that word, good news. And that really is our marching orders as Christians to go out and proclaim good news. And if people ever are hungry for good news, it's today. The good news, he says, which I preach to you or proclaim to you, which also you received in which you also stand, by which also you are saved. And so this good news is saving news. He says, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you unless you believed in vain. Now listen to this. Here's the gospel. For I delivered to you as of first importance that I also received that Christ died for sins according to the scriptures. The essence of the gospel is the substitutionary atoning death of Christ on the cross, but it doesn't end there. He says in that he was buried and that he was raised the third day, according to the scriptures. All of those are essential elements of the gospel. And, And so until we understand the severity of the bad news, we really can't appreciate the good news. And so I want you to come close and I want you to hear the gospel. The gospel starts in the Garden of Eden, where our first parents, Adam and Eve, were created by God and placed in a perfect environment for them. And they enjoyed sweet and perfect fellowship with their creator, God, who gave them one prohibition that they were not to eat of this particular fruit of the tree that was in the midst of the garden. But of course, Eve was tempted, and she disobeyed God, and she sinned. She gave to her husband, Adam, and he ate, and he sinned. Because of that, God the Father cursed the earth, and he cursed all humanity. And from that point on, uh, we were born with a death sentence. Not only that, we were separated by our sinfulness from a holy and a wise God. And yet in Genesis chapter 3, God, who is merciful, said there's going to come a day when the seed of woman will crush the head of Satan. That is, he will ultimately defeat death. And, of course, he was speaking of his plan to send Jesus into the world to die for sinners. So thousands of years pass, and Jesus sets aside one nation from one man, the man Abraham. And and through that nation, he promised this Messiah would come. And at just the right moment, Jesus was born into the world. He lived a perfect, righteous life for over 30 years. And then he ultimately set his face towards Jerusalem, leading his disciples ultimately through the eastern gate at Jerusalem. Where he, at the end of this week, we call Holy Week, was crucified on the cross. And he literally died there. The just for the unjust. The substitute for our sins. The Apostle Paul said it so clearly when he wrote the young pastor Timothy, that the summary of the gospel is that Jesus died for sinners. And so if you're here today and you're in that category, you have the opportunity today to have assurance of salvation. And every person I'm speaking to is in the category of sinner. The Bible says we are sinner first by nature, by virtue of the fact that we are descendants of our first parents, Adam and Eve. That sin nature has been passed down from generation to generation, and we are born. Indeed, the scripture says we are conceived in sin. And then at first opportunity, we are sinners by choice. Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's a big problem because God is holy, and we can't be with a holy God and have that sin problem. But the solution to that problem is that God, who is merciful and kind and slow to anger gave to us that which was most precious to him, his own dear son. John three sixteen says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. And so the way that you appropriate this gift of salvation is clear. It's, it's by faith in what Christ has accomplished through his death, burial and resurrection. You see, most people in the world think that the way to accomplish salvation is through good works. If my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds, or if I can do some great feat of generosity, God will declare me righteous. And friends, that's a fool's errand. There's nothing that we could do to make up for the sinful person that we are. Christ has to do it for us. And that's why the path of salvation is a path of humility. He gives grace to the humble but resist the proud. So long as that you are trying to earn your salvation, you can never be saved. But when you come to that point of humble desperation, just like that tax collector we studied a few months ago, could not even lift his head to heaven, but said, Lord, have mercy upon me, the sinner. That is the prayer of humble faith that the Lord hears. Romans 10, 9 10 says, if we confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that is you submit to his authority and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Now, the evidence that you submit to his authority is repentance, turning from your old life, turning from your sins and towards Jesus and declaring, you are my Lord. You have authority over me. Just as Jesus conscripted that donkey into service, he is conscripting you to serve him for the rest of your life. And if you are willing today to bow your knee to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, if you are willing to confess his lordship over you, if you are willing to confess your sins and turn from them in repentance, you can be saved today. There's no magic formula. There's no magic prayer. He just calls you to faith and repentance. I'm going to pray at this time. And if you're ready to commit your life to the Lord Jesus Christ, just lift up that prayer in your heart. Just tell him in your own words that, that, Lord, I believe what pastor says is the truth. Jesus died for me and I recognize his authority and his lordship over me and I turn from my sins and I want to receive as a gift the salvation that was made possible through his death, burial, and resurrection. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for this, your word and Father, I'm reminded through the story of the triumphal entry of the sovereignty of the Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing happened outside of his control. He willingly left the glories of heaven and emptied himself and took on the form of a baby in the womb of Mary, the virgin mother. And and, and that he was born as men are born and that he was tempted in every way we are throughout his life. And yet he remained sinless, holy and undefiled. And he went to the cross to accomplish his mission to seek and to save that which is lost. And Father, we are surrounded by lostness today. People who are fearful of death because they have no hope of the future. Father, I pray for every Christian, every member of First Baptist Keller that we would manifest the joy of the Lord even through these days. I pray, Father, as people approach us and wanna know the difference that is within us that we would articulate this gospel message very clearly because it's the only hope for a lost and dying world. Now, Father, I pray for anyone who is listening to this sermon today who does not know you as Lord and Savior. And I pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit would convince them of the truth of the gospel. And then, Father, give them new life. Open their blind eyes and breathe life into them and the new birth. Grant them faith and repentance. And I pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake, amen.